0: This might be a radical thing to say, but I'm in a radical mood. On this day when hell is being celebrated, I am so glad to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against you, the church. We are triumphant because of the blood of Jesus, and our God is unstoppable. Sing about it. Unstoppable God. of hell will not prevail against the church of God amen, amen. we are sing the truth today
1: amen amen all right go ahead and grab a seat we are gonna dive in this morning I'm so glad to be with you on this Halloween day which is really strange I mean Halloween and Sunday go together like orange juice and toothpaste um, and yet nah, that's an interesting flavor that combination they haven't tried right uh, and yet, you think about it, Christianity, as, as Christ followers, our most cherished symbol is uh, a torture implement. And the most important day of the entire year for us is a day that a tomb was ripped open and a dead man walked out. So I suppose in a way we could say that Halloween is an appropriate day for us to get to, get to this part in John's Gospel. Where we get to look at the tomb being opened and a dead man walking out. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going, we are, we are so close to the end of John's gospel. And we are in the part of the story that we typically reserve for the most important day of the year, Easter. I'm really excited to get to dive in there with you this morning. So I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the bottom of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. It's our gift to you. Or if there's not one in front of you, just grab one from the person next to you. We're really good at sharing here. I'm joking. God bless you. All right. So last week, we looked at the crucifixion. We looked at that brutal, painful thing. And that took place on a Friday. It took place right before... The the Passover slash Sabbath began. Sabbath begins Sunday on sundown on Friday night, and it continues until sundown on Saturday night. So not only was it a Sabbath day, and they, they really tried to rush and get all the bodies off of the crosses so they wouldn't be remaining up there on that Sabbath, but it was also a Sabbath that happened to coincide with the Passover. And Jesus was taken down from the cross. They hadn't needed to break his knees because he had already been dead. The blood and water, when they pierced his his heart and the blood and water flowing out, were indicative of the fact that he was already dead. And a couple of guys who were not disciples of Jesus, but they respected Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus' body down off the cross And they wrap it in linen with about 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh and all of these other kinds of spices to embalm the body. And they wrapped his body up and they stuck it in a tomb, kind of really quickly, closed the the, the big stone over the door and left his body there. And that was the end of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who who was declared to be king of the Jews by a Roman governor except that it wasn't the end of the story. And as we pick up the story, oftentimes when we come to the Easter story, we're all excited and we're in our, our, our Easter finest, but that's not how that first Easter was like. Because for Jesus' closest disciples, it was not a time to celebrate, it was a time to grieve. And because the Sabbath-slash-Passover had kind of happened Friday night to Saturday night, this Sunday, early Sunday morning was the first opportunity they were getting to come to, to, to say their goodbyes and to grieve the loss of Jesus. So that's where we're picking up the story. It is early Sunday morning. The Sabbath has just ended. The sun is about to crest the hills. Chapter 20, verse 1, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And we know throughout John's gospel, that's the way that John refers to himself. That's a very humble way of refer- referring to yourself, right? The one whom Jesus loved. But So he's saying, she came running, she found Peter and she found John. She said, the tomb is empty. They have taken my Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. A couple of things that we notice in this part. One, Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb. Now, We're not told why she's going to the tomb. From the other Gospels, we get the idea that she's actually probably not going to the tomb by herself. There was a group of women who were going with her, including Jesus' mother and some other gals. But John just really zeroes in on the fact that Mary Magdalene is there. And we're not told why they're going there other than probably to pay their respects. I know that that stone was so heavy that even that group of women could never have possibly moved it out of the way. But they're probably going to the tomb to pay their last respects to a man whom they respected, whom they loved, whom they had followed, whom they had trusted, and grieving his death. But when Mary gets there and she sees the tomb is wide open and and looks inside and sees that there's no body, she freaks out. And what I want us to recognize here is that her first conclusion is not that Jesus is risen from the grave. That is not where her mind goes. Her mind goes instead to the most obvious I- answer for why the body is not there. Somebody has stolen the body. And she freaks out. It would be like you going to visit a, loved, you know, a grave of a loved one and seeing that the grave has been dug up. And the dirt is scattered. And, and the, the, the casket has been wrenched open and there's no body in there. And so she naturally freaks out. And she goes and she tells Simon Peter and she tells John they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love the fact that John finds it important enough in his gospel narrative to remind all of his readers, I'm faster than Peter. (laughs) He makes sure that that is evident. When he got to the tomb, he bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. I think that John really kind of had a respect for the sanctity of the tomb. So he stands on the outside looking in. Peter, however, does not have the same sort of like concerns for the sanctity of the tomb because when Simon Peter came along behind him, probably winded, exhausted, he just got beat, but he went straight into the tomb. So Peter's the first one to enter in because he doesn't care about things like, you know, respecting that kind of thing. But he went in the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. And let me remind you, at this point, this might have been a clue to his disciples had they been thinking clearly. This might have been a clue to them that something miraculous has happened because if somebody had just come to steal a body out of a tomb, they're not going to take the time to unwrap all of the wrappings. Remember, there's 75 pounds of aloe and spices that have been slathered on him as they cocooned the body. And if somebody, like a grave robber, was coming to steal this body and take things from him, they would have just taken the whole cocoon of, of the body and, and then done their business elsewhere. But here are all of the linens, and here's the, the cloth that had wrapped his head, almost as if it's the chrysalis that a, a, a Butterfly is born out of that, is just kind of sunken in on itself, still wrapped up, but there's no body in it. So the cloth was lying there in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb, John, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Oh, he believes. He finally gets it. I don't actually think that that's what it's suggesting. I think that when he goes in and he believes, I think that what he believes at this point is simply that the body is gone because he can see it with his own eyes. And why do I think that? Because look at the very next verse. They, Peter and John, still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus had told them. Jesus had warned them, you will grieve while the rest of the world celebrates, but your grief will turn to joy. He's warned them. Now they see the empty tomb, and they still don't get it. So then the disciples went back to where they were staying. They headed back, probably not as quickly as they came. They're heading back to the upper room, confused, despondent, Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Again, she is not excited for the empty tomb. She has no idea the significance of it at this point. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head, the other at the foot. Now those angels were probably the ones that rolled the stone away, but they have now revealed themselves to Mary. And they asked her, woman, woman, crying. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Again, her first thought is someone stole the body. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Now, this, there could be a lot of ex- reasons for that. It could have been that she had tears in her eye, and so she wasn't able to see clearly. It could be because Jesus, in his resurrected body, doesn't look like he had looked doesn't look like somebody who just three days prior to this has been beaten within an inch of his life and then murdered on a cross. For whatever reason, Mary doesn't recognize that it's Jesus that she's looking at. Verse 15, and he asked her, woman, why are you crying? What are you looking for? And and I want us to remember that that term woman is not derogatory. Like, woman, what are you doing? Like, that's not how it's, this is a normal way that a a person, like it would be like, ma'am, that's, that is similar to our modern day ma'am. So it's not disrespectful in that sense. Woman, why are you crying? What is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. Like she doesn't, She's thinking, that well, maybe the gardener opened the tomb up, took the body out because he wanted to sweep it out because it was so sudden and unexpected that somebody was going to put a body in there. Maybe that's what happened. If you put him somewhere, I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her one word, Mary, her name. But that one word in the tone of voice that he used to say it was enough to get her to to, to blink the tears out of her eyes and turn around and look at Jesus really look at him for the first time. And when she does, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, "Rabboni," which means teacher. And no doubt she threw her arms around him in a vice grip, like I, I lost you once. I'm never going to let go of you again. Like as if she is going to single-handedly hold on to Jesus and make sure he doesn't disappear again. And Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And the first time I read that, I go, dude, that is cold. Like, it seems very impersonal. Hey, don't hold on to me. Like, come on, girl. These are new threads or whatever. Don't, don't, don't step on my sandals. But that's not at all the way that, he, that's not what he means here at all. Can, can you just envision Mary thinking Jesus is dead, thinking the body has been removed, thinking that somebody has stolen the body, despondent, and all of a sudden she sees Jesus, her rabbi, standing there in the flesh, alive, as a, more alive than she's ever seen him. And she, in her joy, grabs hold of him and wants to hold on to him. And I just see the smile on Jesus' face as she's just embracing him and he goes, hey, You don't have to squeeze so hard. You don't have to hold on to me because guess what? I haven't gone yet, but I I have a job for you, Mary. I want you to go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. This is not impersonal. This is as personal as you get, Mary, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid of me going away yet. I have a job for you. And and one thing I want to point out that we could really easily miss, but I think is crucial in, in what Jesus says, is he says, go instead. Instead of holding on to me, instead of like vice gripping me right now and not letting me go as if you're afraid I'm going to leave you, I want you to go and I want you to tell my brother something. This is the first time in all of John's gospel where Jesus refers to his disciples as his brothers. Prior to this, he's referred to them as sheep in his flock, and he he being the shepherd, he's referred to them as servants, he's referred to them as friends. But now, on this side of the cross, something has fundamentally changed in their relationship with the Father and with him. Now, because Jesus has done it, because he has paid the the, the price in full, because he has dealt with our sin once and for all, because it's finished, now they are no longer separated from the Father. Their identity is fundamentally changed. And because of their faith in Jesus, God is now their Father, and that makes Jesus their spiritual brother. This is significant not only for them, but it's significant for us because it reminds us that our standing with the Father is not because of something we do. It's not because we can articulate the gospel clearly. It's not because we have to go to school or go to church a certain amount of years and a certain amount of times a month in order to kind of be made a child of God or to become worthy. Our identity as sons and daughters of God is directly tied to the cross and Jesus' resurrection from it. Our identity has changed. Their identity has changed between Friday and Sunday. The only thing that's changed between that time is that Jesus died and was resurrected. So don't hold on to me, Mary. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father. To my God and to your God. I see Mary kind of just slowly and, and you know kind of peeling her fingers back from the vice grip that she has on Jesus. And then she, she gets up. She has a job to do. And so she, so she heads to where the disciples are with the news. I have seen the Lord. And then she told them all the things that he had said to her. Everything that she had seen. God bless you. Even at this point though, Even with Mary telling the disciples, the body's not gone, Jesus is alive. And I've seen him with my own eyes. We know from the other gospels that the disciples don't automatically go, yay, Jesus is alive, and believe. They don't. In fact, in Luke's gospel, it is the most kind of honest about their response. As Mary and the other gals are sharing the fact that they have seen Jesus in the flesh, We read in Luke's gospel that her words seem to them like nonsense. That's how dead their hope is. That's how discouraged they are. That even when they've got somebody like Mary saying, I'm an eyewitness to the risen Jesus, they simply cannot believe it. It's not until later that night that they begin to believe. And it's because they get to see with their own eyes. Let's keep reading. On the evening of that first day of the week, that would be Sunday. There's a reason, by the way, why we worship together on Sundays, and it's because their relationship with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, began on a Sunday. On that evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, so they're still afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace, be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side where the, the spear had pierced. The disciples were overjoyed and they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said to them, shalom, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, this is the culmination of everything that all of his training. He is now commissioning them to go and do what he has been doing. I'm going to be going to the Father. I'm going to be going to God, and I'm going to be preparing a place, but you have a job while I'm gone. You are going to be the representatives of our Father's heart in this sin-warped world just as I have been his representative. And I know you can't do it alone. You're going to need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so he, he breathes on them kind of symbolically of what would happen A couple of months later, when they are sitting in that same upper room and the Holy Spirit falls on them on the day of Pentecost and empowers them to go out into the streets and to share the good news, and we see what happens in Acts chapter 2 with the beginning of the church, this is just the first fruits of that, that he is beginning to prepare them and to equip them to go and do what he's called them to do. And guys, this is the same marching orders that we have been given, that we would be the ambassadors of hope to a world that desperately needs hope. So that's the Easter story, and it's not all of it. We're going to look at the, the last part of it next week. But that's as far as we're going to get this morning, because there's one thing that stands out to me more than anything as I read through this Easter story and through all the other three Easter stories in all four of the Gospels, and it's this thing. Even though the disciples heard that Jesus was alive, they didn't believe it until they could see it with their own eyes. Even though they heard that the grave was empty and that Jesus was walking around, they still did not believe it. It was just too good to be true. And it, was, it, it seemed like nonsense to them because dead people stayed dead, right? I mean, that's how it's always been. They expected that's how it's always going to be. And even when it comes to Jesus, even with all of his forewarnings, it still seemed utterly ridiculous to them. And yet, that question of is Jesus alive is utterly central to the entire faith journey for each and every one of us. At some point in our journey, we must grapple with that question did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I'm sure that many of you have a lot of questions about your faith, a lot of things that you would love answered. How how exactly does the Holy Spirit kind of breathe scripture so that it's, it's, it's penned by people and Um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 you know is, is it six literal days or is it six epochs you know that they call days like there's so many questions that we have so many areas of disagreement that believers have with one another but at the end of the day put all of those questions aside our entire faith hinges upon one question and one question only did Jesus actually rise from the dead because if the answer is he did not then everything else falls apart. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's a little harsh. But in case you didn't get it the first time, he says it just a few verses later. He says, if Christ has not been raised, next verse, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He goes on to suggest that if Jesus did all of these miraculous things, he he walked on water and he turned water into wine and he healed sick people and he gave sight to the blind and he did all of those things but if he wasn't raised from the dead then all of those other things are are just secondary and they don't prove a thing in fact he goes on to suggest that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead then we should probably take the advice of the epicurean philosophers of the day that suggested that people should just eat drink and be merry why because tomorrow we die this life is, if this life is all you get and we have no hope that Jesus raised from the dead, then make the most of this life. YOLO, man. You only live once. But, he goes on to suggest, if Jesus was raised from the dead, if Jesus did in fact rise from the grave, then everything he claimed about himself is true. And everything he claimed to be able to do is true. And what did he claim to be able to do? He claimed to be able to defang sin so that it could no longer be an impediment. To be able to take the the venom of death so that death would no longer get the last word. That's what he said. That he could restore us back into relationship with the Father. So that we could actually call him our Father. Call Jesus our brother. And not only that, not only just restore our identity as the sons and daughters of God, but restore our purpose that we would be able to become as ambassadors. So do you see why the question of did Jesus rise from the dead is an important question for us to grapple with? I would suggest that when it comes to our own faith journeys, it is the single most important question that we can grapple with, bar none. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to grapple with that question. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? So let me ask you, would you say that Jesus rose from the dead? Before you say yes, hold on a second. I'm sorry, I wasn't quite finished. Can you base it upon anything beyond simply blind faith? Are you simply saying yes because you've been taught to say yes? Or is there something undergirding your confidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Because I will tell you that for the disciples, simply hearing Jesus rose was not enough for them. They needed proof. And thankfully, when it comes to this most central question of our faith, we do not have to take it simply on blind faith. Yes, at the end of the day, we are going to have to make a a decision on whether or not we believe, but there is a mountain of evidence that undergirds our faith claimed that yes, in fact, Jesus rose from the grave. And this morning, I'm not going to try to exhaustively look at all of it because we would be here for weeks and you guys want to go get candy, at least a few of you do. And some of you have candy that if you don't pass it out tonight, you'll end up eating it. So let's make sure that we don't stay here all day. So here's, we're going to look at four primary pieces of evidence. These are, these are pieces of evidence that for me are compelling. Evidence number one is the embarrassing details that are part of the gospel stories. What do I mean by embarrassing details? Well, for instance, we need to remember that when this took place, they were in a Middle Eastern culture that was incredibly patriarchal. It was a culture in which women were treated as second-class citizens, a culture in which a woman's testimony, even if a woman claimed to see a murder, she, her Claim was not permissible as evidence in a court of law. That's how women were treated. And yet, in a culture like that, the very first eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus is a woman. And the very first person commissioned to go share the good news is a woman. Or, take the fact that as as John is articulating the gospel story that he was an eyewitness to, he has to point out the fact that he's faster than Peter and that he beat him in a race. He has to point out that he didn't go in the tomb, but Peter just barged right in, brute that he is. Or they ha- he, he includes, not only he, but all four of the gospel writers articulate the fact that even when the grave was empty, the disciples still didn't get it. That even when they heard the message that Jesus was raised from the dead and that eyewitnesses see it, those words seem like nonsense. Now, why is that important? Wouldn't Wouldn't that actually undermine the strength of the gospel? And in fact, the answer is no. Because when historians try to go back and discern, is this just myth? Or is this something that actually happened? One of the things they look for is embarrassing details or details that would actually hinder the the people who are listening from believing it. And when those details are there, such as if you were making up the story of Jesus resurrected to try to prove to people that Jesus actually did raise from the dead, you would not make up the fact that the first eyewitnesses were women. Not in that culture you wouldn't. And you wouldn't add in details that were embarrassing to you. Things like the fact that even when you saw it with your own eyes that the tomb was empty, and even after Jesus had warned you it was going to happen, you still didn't get it. You're not going to include those details, but they did. And that kind of evidence lends credibility to historians that those articulations of what happened actually happened that way. But thankfully, that is not all the evidence that we have. That's just the first, and I would suggest perhaps some of the weakest evidence we're going to look at this morning. The second piece of evidence that we can look at is the extra-biblical accounts, that there are things, there's evidence that is outside of the Bible that actually supports the fact that the tomb was empty. Now, remember, what city was Jesus crucified in? Jerusalem, right? And where did the disciples first begin to share the good news that Jesus was raised from the dead? In Jerusalem. Not more than two months after the fact. So if the body of Jesus was still in a tomb, still rotting away, it would have been really easy for the Roman government or for the Jewish leaders to put a kibosh on that line of thinking because all they would need to do is, is present a body. Would you agree? In fact, I, there's, there's a theologian, Paul Althus, who... Do I have this up there? Can we, can we throw his... He says this, this is from a, a theologian named Paul Althus. He said, The resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. In other words, if the tomb wasn't really empty, then it would have been really, 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 really easy for anybody who wanted to, to prove that this was f- fake news to simply produce a body. And in fact, we read in, in other Gospels, such as in Matthew's Gospel, that the Jews admitted that the body was gone because they, like, they were pointing the finger at Jesus' disciples saying, they stole the body! So they themselves were admitting that the body was gone because they're casting blame. Or, you've got a, a Jewish historian, a guy named Josephus, who writes about the fact that the body was gone, that the tomb was empty. And this is what historians call positive evidence from a hostile source in other words for instance if both of my sons are accusing the other of doing something wrong and one son goes well i was in that room and the other brother goes well that's true he was in that room but then i can have i I can take it to the bank that he was in fact in that room because he does not want to admit that perhaps there's something that supports his argument or you could do the same thing with politicians right anytime a politician agrees that their competition is being truthful you can pretty much take that to the bank and in the same way we have a bunch of hostile sources admitting yes in fact the body is gone so we can be pretty darn confident that the body was not in the tomb but of course this does not answer the question of what happened to the body because maybe the body was stolen maybe maybe this was just all made up right and so in order to ask the question of what happened to the body, we need to go to the third piece of evidence. And that is eyewitness accounts. There were not just a couple eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, but a whole slew of them. If you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm also going to throw this up on the screen, but sometimes it's just nice to read it out of God's Word directly. So if you want to go to the right, to 1 Corinthians 15, it's right before 2 Corinthians. It's right after Romans. That's kind of where it's hidden. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where Paul begins to explore this question of, did, in chapter 15 is a whole long exploration of the Apostle Paul grappling with the question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead and what is the significance of it? And here's what he writes. For what I received, I passed on to you of, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to those scriptures, and that he appeared first to Peter, although some of your Bibles use the word Cephas, which was his, his name non you know before jesus changed it and then to the 12 disciples and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep and that's a euphemism for they've died then he appeared to james jesus's half-brother he was the son of mary and joseph rather than the son of god and mary then he appeared to james and then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Again, he, he's pointing to himself and saying, hey, listen. He revealed himself in a, in a very different manner than he revealed to the rest of them. I got to see the resurrected Jesus when I was headed to Damascus. If you were making this up as some people who would point to the, the empty grave and say, you know what, this is all a farce. This is really just something that was concocted by his disciples in order to perpetuate this mystique, this myth about Jesus, then you would want, if you were making this up and it was a lie, then you would want to keep the circle of insiders who know the truth as small as possible, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Oh, good. I'm glad that you guys are still awake. And yet what we hear is that you've got over 500 eyewitnesses And most of those eyewitnesses are still alive. In other words, what Peter is suggesting, I'm sorry, what Paul is suggesting in this is if you don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Go ask any one of them. Go ask Peter. Go ask James. Go ask any one of those 500 eyewitnesses that saw him because most of them are still alive. If you were making this up and you knew it was a lie, you would just say, I'm going to wait till most of them die and then I'm going to try to float that. Because then nobody can check my sources. But he's inviting us to check his sources. Just go ask him, he says. But wait a minute, Eric. All those 500 plus people that supposedly saw him, they were all his disciples. They all had had a reason to lie, a reason to make it up. Oh, really? All of them were his disciples. What about Saul of Tarsus? Would anybody have called Saul of Tarsus? a disciple of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus made it a point to stamp out the gospel. When we read in the book of Acts the growth of the early church and people sharing their testimony and people giving their faith, the very first Christian martyr, when he was murdered, it was Saul of Tarsus who was standing there giving his approval to the death of Stephen. And then, As persecution broke out in Jerusalem, it was Saul of Tarsus who got on his horse and headed to Damascus in order to arrest Christians there. He had made it his life's purpose to stamp out this false gospel, what he believed was a false gospel, in order to make sure that God was protected from these so-called followers of a, of a dead, crucified carpenter. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knocks him from his high horse. He blinds him by the light. And he's basically introduced to Jesus. And everything changes. Saul becomes Paul the most outspoken proponent for the gospel, the same guy that writes 1 Corinthians 15, the same guy who says, and I I he lastly he revealed himself to me as one abnormally born. That's what he's pointing towards when he says that. Would anybody have called Saul a follower of Jesus prior to meeting the resurrected Jesus? Nobody. But he's not the only one in this list. There's also Jesus' half brother James. Because remember, all throughout John's gospel, all of his brothers thought he was crazy. I mean, it's like Grayson probably feels towards Ethan, like he's my big brother. There's nothing special about him, right? It's it's brotherly competition. In fact, we read that Jesus's brothers at one point show up with their mom to try to take him home because there's crowds are coming to see Jesus and they come to take him home and put him to bed because they think he's just sick in the head. And it's not until after James, remember as well, James was nowhere to be seen at the cross. He wasn't a supporter or a follower of Jesus at any point before the cross. It was only after he sees his brother resurrected from the dead, sees him with his own eyes, that he places his faith in Jesus as his Lord. And it's James who goes on to be one of the leaders of the early church there in Jerusalem. Guy, he became known as Old Camel Knees because of the amount of time he spent on his knees in prayer. You want to see how he feels about his big brother, Jesus? Just read the letter that he wrote, the letter of James in your Bible. He declares Jesus to be Lord. Neither he nor Paul would ever have been called followers of Jesus until after they met the resurrected Jesus. And once they met the resurrected Jesus, everything changed. And this brings me to my fourth, and what I would suggest to you is the most powerful piece of evidence that we're going to look at this morning for the fact that the tomb was not only empty, but that Jesus actually rose from the dead, and that is the radically transformed lives of the men and women who saw him. What were the disciples doing after Jesus' crucifixion? Where'd they go? They were hiding. They were hiding out for fear that what had befallen their rabbi would happen to them, right? And they've already shown themselves to be a flighty, fearful group of people. When when the mob comes to arrest Jesus, they bolt. When a little servant girl asks Peter, excuse me, sir, but weren't you one of his followers? I'm sure she probably didn't, whatever. She totally sounded like that. What is his response i don't even know the man right so there's this sense of they're fearful people who will do anything to kind of preserve their life they don't want to get embroiled in something that will get them in trouble they're even trying to tell jesus you shouldn't go to jerusalem because the people don't like you there right now jesus and yet, in the midst of all of this, once they see the resurrected Jesus, once the Holy Spirit falls upon them, they cannot help but tell people about it. In fact, they go from hiding out in the upper room to coursing out into the streets of Jerusalem during the Pentecost feast, which is 50 days after Passover. And it is, the, the streets are clogged with people from all over the known world who have come to celebrate Pentecost And they begin to share the gospel in languages that the people can understand and the church begins to grow and for a time it's exciting and it doesn't seem to cost the disciples all that much except for their stuff because they're selling things to help support one another and they're loving one another and they're gathering every day in the courts they're doing life together but then all of a sudden persecution breaks out Do you remember this I mean, it began with Stephen, that first Christian martyr, who refuses to back down on the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he's seen him with his own eyes. And when Stephen is stoned to death for blasphemy, with Saul of Tarsus standing there giving his approval, persecution, a great persecution broke out upon the church there in Jerusalem. And at that point, if any of these men or women were just making this up, if they were just fabricating this lie because they thought perhaps this is going to benefit us in the long run. We're going to get money. People are going to give us like a tenth of whatever they make. And, 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 and we're going to have prestige. We're going we're gonna to be like the, the people who walked with Jesus. People are going to ask us to come and do TED Talks. <laughs> if that's what they thought, well then in that moment they were disabused of that belief. Because when persecution broke out, It began to become very costly to be a follower of Jesus. They were were isolated, thrown out of the synagogue. They were mocked and persecuted. They were beaten. They were stoned. In many cases, many of them lost their lives and yet... All throughout that, they were unwilling to recant of their declaration that Jesus is alive, so therefore Jesus is Lord. And even when they have to leave their home there in Jerusalem, and they're forced out of the city, and out into the the wider region of Judea, it would be like Orange County, and then into the, the untouchables out in Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, wherever they go, they will not shut up about their faith in Jesus because they've seen him with their own eyes. Even though it cost them their life, and it cost them dearly. Of Jesus' 12 disciples, only one of them died of natural causes. That's John, the one who wrote this gospel, but even he didn't have an easy time of it. He was beaten, he was, he was, they tried to boil him to death, and ultimately he was arrested and he was sent to a penal colony. It'd be like if, in our day, it would be like if we said, hey, let's make Catalina Island. Uh, We don't have to do that. Send him to Alcatraz, right? Put him out there. We don't want him. He's going to jail. Let's put him out there. He was persecuted for his faith because he wouldn't shut up about the fact that he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he wasn't the only one. So many of them lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. Remember Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times because he was afraid that he might get caught and and, and identified as a follower of Jesus? Not only was he crucified, but when Nero said, if you don't shut up about this Jesus, I'm going to kill you, he goes, do your worst, Nero. And in fact, I don't deserve to be killed the same way that my Lord was, so would you please crucify me upside down? You want to tell me? that these men and women were perpetuating a lie because they thought it would benefit them, it didn't benefit them. It cost them everything. I don't know about you. I know a lot of people lie about a lot of things, but I don't know anybody who is willing to die for something that they know to be a lie. And yet, countless of them gave their lives because they were convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead because they saw him with their own eyes. And so therefore they believed that he was Lord. And that to me is the strongest piece of evidence for the fact that the tomb was not only empty, but that Jesus had risen from the dead. Which then leads us to this question. So what? It's always a question we need to ask. Whenever we read scripture, so what? How now shall we live in light of that fact Because the truth of the matter is, as I share these things with you, you might simply write them off as coincidental. Lots of people do. And they go on living as if Jesus is nothing more than a a piece of history. Or, you know, somebody who is mythologized. And they continue to be the captains of their own ship. But, if we truly do believe that he is who... He said he was, and that he did what he said he was going to do, that he did in fact rise from the dead, then how now shall we live? And thankfully, we don't have to just pull an answer out of thin air. Thankfully, Paul speaks to that in in 1 Corinthians 15. So last couple of verses we're going to look at, and then we're going to wrap this whole thing up. Right at the very end of Acts 15, Paul begins to explore this idea, not there just yet, Paul begins to explore this idea of if Jesus rose from the dead, then we too will rise from the dead. And our bodies, which right now are suffer decay, break down, cancers, pestilence, and all those kind of things, and death. All of those things will be overcome because of what Jesus has done. If Jesus truly did rise from the dead, then we have that to look forward to as well. And he ends his thought here with verse in verse 55. He says, "Death, where is your victory, and where, O oh, death, is your sting?" The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God for he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, death used to reign, but it no longer reigns. Jesus is on the throne. He has defanged and dethroned death. And now he concludes with these thoughts. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that you labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me paraphrase what Paul is suggesting. Guys, I know that life in this sin warped world is hard, I know it's painful, I know it's discouraging. I know it's hard when you look around and it seems like things that are evil are winning. And it seems like all of your best laid plans keep coming back for nothing. Like you, you, You try to build your world and order your life and it just keeps falling down around your feet. You work so hard to provide. And it just seems like You can't get ahead. And every time that things start going well, you stumble. And it's just like, and you see persecution affecting you daily. You see an enemy that seems to be winning and you get discouraged. I get it. But there's hope. There's hope for us who find ourselves trudging through a sin-scarred world through a world that seems to be continuing to be darkened by sin and darkened by people who refuse to listen to the truth. Your job is not to defeat the enemy. Your job is to stand firmly against his attacks. Your job is not to be known for being right. Your job is to reflect the heart of the loving God who loves your enemy and turns the other cheek. Your job is not to overthrow hell. That's Jesus' job. He already did it on the cross. And he's going to finish what he started when he comes back. And in the meantime, your job is simply to stand against the attack of the enemy. To stand with your eyes not fixed on your circumstances and not fixed on the politics, and not fixed on the ticker tape of how many infections and how many deaths, and not fixed on your bank account, and not fixed on the fluctuations of the stock market, and not fixed on how your company is doing or what your title is, and not fixed on how your kids did in school or in sports or whatever, your job is simply to stand with your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Your job is to stand with your eyes fixed on him rather than the wind and the waves that seem to want to overwhelm you. And your job is to reflect the values, the heart of your father. He's not just your God. He is your father. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. To reflect his values in the way you treat other people not as an arrogant person who has to be proven right by proving them wrong, but as somebody who loves even very unlovable people. Somebody who, when somebody attacks you, is willing to turn the other cheek rather than getting even. Somebody who is willing to use the things that God has blessed you with, your time, your talents, your stuff, to care for the needs of others. You have a voice, to use that voice to speak up for those who don't have a voice. You have strength, great, to use your strength to help people whose strength is waning. You found hope in Jesus, awesome, me too. It's to come alongside others who have lost their hope and allow them to lean on you and to love them, to love them right where they're at and not browbeat them because they don't, they're do not they not where you're at and they don't see things the way you do, but simply come alongside of them and love them and reflect the heart of God. That is what we are called to do, to give people a reason to run to Jesus, not run from him. And we get to do that on a day like Halloween, arguably the darkest day of the entire year, a day when People are tempted to to dress i mean i I walked into one of those costume shops and literally my soul was like get out Ah!" it's 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 hard when you have a sensitivity to the spirit to it's a dark night we are the church this building is not the church otherwise we would make sure that this church was open and we were out in the parking lot inviting people but you're the church And God has supernaturally planted you in spheres of influence. He's planted you on your street. He's put you in relationships with other people. And tonight, perhaps prayerfully go, God, how would you have me be a light in my sphere of influence? Because there's people who are hurting. I have a very close friend. I have a a person that I've done a lot of life with that I just found out yesterday took his life this week. There's a lot of people that are like him that have lost hope. We get, to, we get to be the kind of people that until Jesus returns, we get to say, here I am, Christ Jesus. You're my Lord. Everything I have, it's a gift from you and I invite you to use it as you see fit. Show me how to love the people that you put in my life. Therefore, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up while I read this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain and you know that death doesn't even get the last word. Jesus, I thank you so much for giving your life for us, for suffering in our place, for taking our sins upon us. Yourself on the cross. I thank you that you've done it. You've paid it in full and it's finished. I thank you that because of what you did on the cross, we are sons and daughters of God. We become your brothers and your sisters in faith. And we choose to follow you, we choose to keep our eyes on you, we choose to reflect your heart into this world because Lord knows we need it right now. This, our neighbors need it. There are people all around us who are losing hope. So would you fill us with hope and then send us out to be light in the darkness. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus. Glorify yourself in and through us. Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, to stand firm Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. You know, before we get started, I realize I'm going to ask some of our elder couples, if you will just head to the back. If you need prayer for any reason, we want to pray with you. Jeff's back there. I'm going to be back there with Kathy. A couple other couples will be back there. We just want to pray with you if you're carrying something that feels too heavy for you. We want to help shoulder that burden with you. Let's worship together.
0: The reign of darkness has now ended. In the kingdom of light. In the kingdom of light. you're the king of my life you're the king of my life His blood poured out for us the weight of every curse upon Him.
1: Best part about this: This isn't the end of church. This may be the end of our gathering here, although I know a lot of you are going to hang out for a while and have conversations, which I absolutely love. There's something wonderful about gathering together. But now the church is going to get out beyond the walls of the building. Now the light is going to get out beyond the edges of the light bulb, and it's going to radiate into the darkness. Guys, you are sons and daughters. You, your identity is established, and your purpose has been reestablished as well, you get to be His ambassadors of hope. And my prayer is that our Father would be, be glorified, and we would reflect the heart of our Father in the ways we interact with people throughout today, in the way that you love your neighbors, perhaps in the way you're intentional about even investing this night, but not just tonight. Every day, in every interaction, whether it's at work or at school, we get to be the church. And I look forward to getting to gather with you. On Wednesday nights, we're doing dinners at 6 o'clock. It's been so fun to get to sit and be together across the street in the family room. I invite you to come at 6 o'clock and eat with us on Wednesdays. And even beyond, as we look past Halloween into the holidays that we all look forward to, I recognize that it can also be some of the most depressing time for many people. And, and it can be a reminder of, of how, how little... Bye, Cade, we love you. <laughs> but it can be a reminder for how little some people have and how, how, how much they need help. And it's an opportunity for us as the family of God to kind of take what God has entrusted to us and use it. And so... I know that Gary and and Kathy and and Bill are going to be at the back. If you want to help with Thanksgiving coming up, we've got 1,100 meals, Thanksgiving meals we're trying to provide for needy families in in our community. They are the ones who are orchestrating that. And so I would invite you to grab a slip of paper on how you can get involved. That's in the back. And then I would just say, hey, listen, just a reminder. You are loved. You don't have to earn that. You are secure in that love. You don't have to prove anything, but you get to go and be a reflection of that love and love others that are pretty, stinking, unlovable. May you reflect the heart of your Lord. If you have prayer requests or you have offering, you can put it in the back. I look forward to seeing you next week. Have a wonderful week.